This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, let's take our Bibles and be turning to the book of Romans. I am so um, energized about preaching through the book of Romans and what the Apostle Paul has been encouraging our hearts concerning related to the doctrine of justification by faith. We have really chosen uh, in the last couple of weeks to sort of slow down in our study of Romans. We have been looking at larger sections of Scripture throughout our sequential exposition of this book, but I, I feel very burdened this morning to slow down even more because of the topic that we are going to address within the larger framework of the doctrine of justification and the blessings that flow from that, and that is the topic of joy in the midst of suffering. I want to read beginning in Romans 5 and verse 1, so please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll read through verse 11. This is our larger text that we have chosen to take uh, two or three weeks to break apart, and we'll continue to do that here this morning. Picking up in verse 1, Paul writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May God add his blessing to his word. Let's ask him for help, and you may be seated as we do that. Father, we acknowledge this morning that there are many in this room who have heavy burdens on their hearts, trials, vexations, anxiety, tremendous suffering, whether it's physical or emotional. Father, we look to your word. We look to doctrine what we know to be true, to encourage and comfort our hearts this morning. So we pray that I would have a special unction of the Holy Spirit to explain these words, which are words breathed out by the Holy Spirit, to help your people, to give them comfort and assurance in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their sorrow, and all in light of the gospel, this glorious gospel. We thank you for it, and we trust that you'll use our time for your glory as we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is no way this morning, I'll confess to you that um, as a young man in seminary, that I could have ever been prepared in a classroom setting to be able to adequately be ready 
for all of the trials and all of the tribulations and all of the burdens, not that I would experience, but those of whom I would pastor. The pain and the suffering and the sorrow, the sorrow of a broken marriage, the pain of um, the loss of a child, the sadness of a rebellious child, the care of aging parents, cancer, and all the rest. As a minister of the gospel, I, I look at the world and I look at the unbelievers I know and the world seeks comfort in all the wrong places. I think we can agree on that this morning. The world seeks comfort in therapy. I mean, everything today is trauma, except the trauma caused by human depravity. And people think they need therapy simply because they view sin as a sickness instead of realizing the fact that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They have a broken relationship with God. They've been completely severed from their Creator. That is the greatest trauma imaginable. But people seek therapy. People seek rehabilitation. There is enough good at the heart of everyone, people say, that we can reinvent one another. We can rehab ourselves to be the best version of me. But Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can even understand it? Therapy doesn't help in terms of comfort. Rehabilitation doesn't help in terms of comfort. So people turn then to drugs and alcohol. If I can just feel good, then my problems will disappear. And we all know that such does not cure our problems, but compounds our problems. Paul has been laboring to show us that the problem of man is a problem of sin. Isn't that right? It's a problem of sin. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can fix that. He's been speaking about the doctrine of justification. What is that? Very simply, if you're a child this morning, here's a simple definition. Justification is the teaching that God treats those who place faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins just as if you never sinned. That's justification. It's being made right with God. It's being justified. It's being declared righteous. And when we are made right with God, all things in our world are made right, at least eventually so, even in suffering. Even in suffering and pain, if we are right with God, then all things in our lives are right, and they are right on schedule. That is really Paul's point here in this little section, verses 3 through 8. Now, Paul has been laboring and I want to give sort of the bird's eye view this morning because we were out of Romans last week. If you want a simple five-point outline of Romans, I can give it to you and I can give it to you on one hand. Paul speaks, first of all, about sin. Secondly, he speaks about salvation. Third, he speaks about sovereignty. Fourth, he speaks about sanctification. And fifth, he speaks about service. In chapters 1 through 3, he speaks about the universal problem of sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he later says that the wages of sin is death in chapter 6. Sin is the universal problem. And Paul dealt with that at length in chapters 1 through 3. But he didn't stop there. He moved then in chapters 3 through 5 to speak about the solution, which is salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the section that we are in now. He points to Jesus Christ as the solution to all of our problems. He's the solution to provide forgiveness of sins through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Third, in chapters 6 through 8, he speaks about sanctification. That is, that salvation involves not just saving you from hell, but saving you from yourself, saving you from sin, conforming you 
to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the process of sanctification. And so he moves from sin to salvation to sanctification. Then chapters 9 through 11, he speaks about sovereignty, God's meticulous sovereignty over all of this process from beginning to end. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. And the goal to which God is moving all of this salvation project is perfect conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And in his sovereignty, he does a lot of things with national ethnic Israel, and he does a lot of things with his own chosen people, including suffering and pain and persecution to get us to the point that we begin to look like our suffering Savior. So sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and then chapters 12 through 16, service. What does this look like? How do we live in light of this glorious doctrine? Now, Paul was a wonderful preacher because although the thrust of his ministry, the thrust of his preaching, the thrust of his epistles was rooted in doctrine, nevertheless, at times, Paul gives some very practical, encouraging, and reassuring words, even in the midst of deep doctrine. And that's what he does in Romans 5, 1 through 11. He allows us a chance to catch our breath. In light of justification, which he defines there, notice in verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. That is what he was speaking about in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Therefore, in light of all I've said in chapters 3 and 4, since we have been justified by faith, Paul says in essence, now I want to give you six glorious blessings that flow from that reality of being declared righteous of being justified. Again, justification has nothing to do with your works. It has nothing to do with anything that you have done. It is purely based on the sovereignty of God. It is purely based on God's gracious act. John 3.16, He so loved the world that He sent His Son into the world to die for sinners. And those who place their faith in Christ, seeking forgiveness of sins, not looking to themselves and their own righteousness, but to the righteousness of Christ, to His obedience and then His willingness to be a substitute in our place, dying in our place because we deserve death. God says in His Word, you will be declared righteous. Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous, and notice how it comes, He says, by faith. It's not by good works, it comes by faith. There is a demonstration of trust that this is the only means of salvation. The doctrine of justification is simply the heart of the gospel. And this morning, if you don't understand the doctrine of justification or you misunderstand the doctrine of justification, then you have not been declared righteous. You are still in your sin. You are still without salvation. But if you've been declared righteous, which is an objective act of God, it's a declarative act of God Almighty, and it takes eyes of faith to believe that, but if you have been declared righteous, there are all sorts of these blessings that flow to you in this life and the next life. And that's what Paul is unpacking for us in verses 1 through 11. We saw last time that the first glorious blessing in light of justification is peace with God. Peace with God. The end of verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, here it is, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first blessing is peace with God, which implies the fact that we were rebels, right? It implies the fact that we were enemies of God. He was um, at hostility with us. We were at hostility with him. 
There was nothing that was uh, going to fix this thing. There was nothing like a simple handshake where you could just call everything off and act like it didn't happen. We were at war with God. And the doctrine of justification says that we've been declared righteous so that now we have peace with God. There's no longer a war. There's no longer hostility. There is complete peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, through our union with Christ, because of our faith in Christ, Jesus Christ allows us to stand with him before the Father, and he is our mediator. We now have peace with God. You might not have peace in the world. You might not have peace with those in your own family. You might not have peace with your neighbor, but isn't it a great blessing to have peace with God? That's the greatest blessing of all. And that's the first greatest blessing of justification is that we have peace with God. Almighty, powerful God who has the authority and the ability to cast us into the eternal lake of fire, we are now at peace with God. And if God be for us, then who can be against us? So that's a tremendous blessing. The second blessing that we saw was not only peace with God, but number two, access before God. Notice the beginning of verse two. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We quoted verses like, Hebrews 4.16, that we are able to approach the throne of grace with confidence. We looked at uh, all the Old Testament imagery of the veil in the temple that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies. We spoke about the high priest who entered behind the veil to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the atonement of the sins of the people. And we spoke about at Calvary how that veil was rent from top to bottom. That was clearly an act of God. It wasn't something a priest did from bottom to top. It was from top to bottom to prove that now through the gospel, through the atonement of Christ, the last sacrifice, we now have access before God. We've obtained this access by faith, verse 2 says, into this grace in which we stand. So we stand in this grace. We stand in a state of justification. There's nothing that can change your status. This isn't like being in the military where you can be stripped of your rank. You have been given a certain rank before God, a certain standing before God, and it doesn't matter what you do and what sins you commit, that rank cannot be stripped from you because you stand in grace. If you didn't stand in grace, it could be stripped. It's not based on works. It's not based on the law. It's not based on performance. It's a status that cannot and will not ever be removed if you've truly been declared righteous. You're standing in this grace before God Almighty, within the Holy of Holies, with Jesus as your great high priest and your mediator. That's a tremendous blessing because it allows us to come before him in worship this morning without being struck by lightning. It allows us to come boldly before him in prayer. when well, we don't know how to pray and what to pray, and sometimes we pray pretty stupid things, but God doesn't zap us. He doesn't pound us. He listens very closely to the prayers of his son who pleads on our behalf, as well as the Holy Spirit who prays for us as well. Before, we did not have access into the Holy of Holies. We did not have access before God. We were alienated from Him. We were cut off from Him. We were without hope. So this is a tremendous blessing, and I I feel so incompetent this morning even explaining this because it's such an understatement to say that we now have peace with God. We now have access before God. We're so used to hearing it. We're so familiar with Scripture, but let that sink in. God is no longer at war with you, and you have face-to-face access before Him, just like Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. The third blessing, 
Not only peace with God and access before God, but number three, hope of the glory of God. The end of verse two, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, I'm not going to go into detail this morning, but we saw last week there's a lot in that phrase, the hope of the glory of God. It speaks about the hope of what we will be someday, the hope of what the world will be someday. Paul describes the fact that we groan with creation. We await the redemption of our bodies. There is a glory that is awaiting us. We await the glorious revealing of Jesus Christ at his second return. We await the glory and the radiant splendor of God filling this world with all of its purity so that the glory and the knowledge of the Lord will cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. The Old Testament speaks about this sort of language that this world although it might appear at times to be falling apart, is not falling apart because Jesus has been enthroned. This world is being put back together. This world is being renewed. And we're moving forward ultimately to the time, and it probably won't be in my lifetime or your lifetime, but ultimately to the time in which all things in this world are renewed, in which the glory of the radiant splendor of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, will fill this world and fill this earth. And then at the consummated kingdom, we have the eternal glory. You see, that is our hope. It is our blessed hope that we look forward to that. And so while there are present benefits regarding our peace with God and access before God, there's also the hope of the glory of God, the the hope of what is to come. And my dear friends, sometimes it is that hope, that future hope, which is all that keeps us going. Because sometimes we don't feel like we're at peace with God. Sometimes it doesn't feel like we have access before God. It doesn't feel like he is hearing our prayers. Sometimes it is only the hope of the glory of God that keeps us going. And so Paul encourages us in these ways. That we have peace with God. We have access before God. We have the hope of the glory of God. But this morning I want to speak specifically about the fourth blessing. And that is joy and suffering for God. Joy and suffering for God. It's the fourth blessing Notice it again with me, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These are precious verses because verses 3 through 8 teach us that there is a divine purpose behind suffering, and the divine purpose behind suffering is joy. Notice how Paul begins in verse 3. He says, not only that. In other words, there's more blessings for the believer who is truly justified, not just peace with God, not just access before God, not just the hope of the glory of God. Paul says, not only that, but there is more. And what he enumerates here in 3b through verse 8 is that there is a divine purpose, listen to this, for all suffering, for the justified believer. And you say, well, how do I draw upon experiencing recognizing the divine purpose of God in my suffering. Well, there are three factors that upon reflection are a cause for rejoicing. Number one, there's what I want to call the culmination factor. Number two, the maturation factor. And number three, the confirmation factor. 
My prayer this morning as we look at these is that you will reflect on all three of these factors. Don't take my word for it. Look at your Bible. Look at the text. Look at Paul's straightforward words and understand this morning, regardless of what you're facing, regardless of what pain you might be experiencing, what trial you might be in the midst in, on the authority of God's word, one of the greatest blessings that you will enjoy in this lifetime as a Christian is joy even in the midst of suffering for the sake of God. So let's look at these three factors that are a cause for rejoicing and suffering for God. Number one, the culmination factor. Verse three, not only that, Paul says, here's the culmination factor, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And I just want to stop right there. That is an amazing statement. We rejoice. Kakamai is the Greek word for rejoice. It has the idea of to exult in or even to glory in. And notice that Paul says, this is a matter of fact, we rejoice in our sufferings. And you might ask yourself, how can this be? Are you sitting there telling me that I will rejoice and even glory rather than be ashamed of the sufferings that I experience in this present life? Well, that is exactly what the scriptures say. And this isn't something Paul says is just a potentiality. This isn't something that Paul says and suggests may happen. This is a fact. It is a reality. That the culmination of all your sufferings as a justified believer is that because you have been justified, God has given you an occasion that others do not have, and that is the ability to rejoice not just in the best of times, but also the worst of times. And as a Christian, that may be hard to chew, but it's not hard to swallow because many of you have experienced that very thing. That's not something a non-Christian can experience. They can't fathom having joy in the midst of trials because not only do they have to deal with their daily problems, but they have to deal with the eternal problem of not being made right with God. And so it's unnatural for an unbeliever, and it's even cruel to tell an unbeliever to enjoy their sufferings because they are sitting under the suffering of the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God has been revealed. But for a justified believer, Paul's saying, We are dealing not with the natural, but the supernatural. We now have a supernatural ability, a supernatural power, as Paul says in verse 3, to rejoice not just in the best of times, but even the worst of times. Now, he describes this trouble as sufferings. Notice that in verse 3. It is the Greek word philipsis. It literally means pressures. So you need to think of daily pressures, and I can give you sort of a word picture. This word philipsis is used to describe the squeezing of olives in an olive press or the threshing of grapes to make juice to make wine. And that is why many commentators and some Greek experts believe that this is almost a technical term, philipsis or suffering, to describe specifically persecution when the world presses us with persecution. And although that may be true, contextually, Persecution might specifically be in mind because Paul is, after all, writing to the Roman Christians who are suffering under the Roman emperor who persecuted Christians and killed the Apostle Paul. Contextually, I think that fits, but conceptually, conceptually, I think this word philipsis has to do with all kinds of suffering. This is not limited to just persecution. This is all sorts of suffering. And what Paul is saying is that the cumulative result of even suffering for the one made right with God, for the one justified, is that you and I will have the ability to rejoice. He says that in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. 
Now, I need to qualify that because when Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings, he's not saying that the justified believer is a stoic. This is not a grin and bear it sort of attitude. This isn't just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, put a smile on your face, grit your teeth and push through it. We rejoice in our sufferings. That's not the mindset. God is compassionate to our pain. We're to be compassionate even to the pain of others. We're to weep with those that weep. We don't tell other Christians to suck it up. We say, how can I help you experience joy and experience peace in the midst of your suffering? Paul said in Galatians 6:2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We are to help each other. We're not to act like this is enjoying, uh, an enjoying experience. We're not to be stoic and just grin and bear it. So Paul is not saying we rejoice in our suffering because we're stoic. He's also not saying that we're masochistic. That's sort of a, a sick and twisted idea that there is pleasure in pain. That's not what Paul is saying. Rejoicing in our suffering is not the same thing as enjoying our suffering. Do you enjoy your suffering? I certainly don't enjoy my suffering. This is having the right perspective in the midst of pain. That's what it means to rejoice in suffering. Remember Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, he referred to our suffering as momentary light affliction. Why? Because he says it produces in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So it's joyful in the sense that when we compare our suffering to the glories of eternity, there can be a sense of joy in the present. Rejoicing in the midst of suffering is the ability to glory in the promise of God's strength in the midst of our weakness. If you flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul spoke about this rather personally regarding the thorn in his flesh. And Paul asked God to remove it, and in verse 9, Paul says, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so what was Paul's response? Because God wouldn't move it. He wouldn't remove that thorn. Well, Paul's response should be our response. Therefore, I will boast. Now, underline the word boast. It's kakamai. It's the same Greek word translated as rejoice in Romans 5.3 in our text. Paul says, I will rejoice. I will glory. I will exalt. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul is, is not saying we rejoice in our suffering because as a justified believer, I'm a stoic, grin and bear it, I'm a masochist, there's pleasure and pain. No, this is the power of Christ that we're depending upon, which is a cause for joy. We're not stoic, we're not a masochist, and we're also not legalistic about this. An attitude that says, I know why you're suffering, you're suffering because God is getting you back. That is common among Christians. Um, what does verse 9 say? Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from what? The wrath of God. The wrath of God. You say, yeah, but there is a sense in which God disciplines His children. You're right, but discipline the discipline of God is not the same as the wrath of God. The author of Hebrews speaks about this. Hebrews 12, for the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That, that is an amazing verse, an amazing verse, because the author of Hebrews is hinting at the fact that there is even joy in the midst of the disciplining hand of God. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is training His children. He's not inflicting wrath on them. Discipline is... God's medicine, it's not his sword. And you say, how do you know that? 
Well, because of the very definition of justification. Paul says we have peace with God when we're justified. So how can God who is now at peace with us act like he's at war with us with a sword or wrath? You see, that's different than discipline. The discipline of God is actually loving. But there are so many people that say we are to rejoice in our suffering because you're getting what God is getting you back for. This is the wrath of God upon you. And many pharisaical and legalistic people will say, therefore, we need to rejoice in our suffering. You're getting what you deserve. So just rejoice in it. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what the author of Hebrews means. The discipline of God is not the same as the wrath of God. Here's what John Chrysostom says on Hebrews 12.11. He says, those who drink bitter medicines first submit to some unpleasantness. Now, isn't that true? Even children understand that. When mom and dad give you medicine and it has that bitter taste, it's unpleasant. Chrysostom says, those who drink bitter medicines first submit to some unpleasantness, but afterward feel the benefit. Well, that's the discipline of God. On the same verse, Hebrews 12:11, Thomas Watson says, how much good comes to saints by affliction when they are pounded and broken? He says, affliction is a bitter root, but it bears sweet fruit. Affliction is the highway to heaven, though it be flinty and thorny, yet it is the best way. Only Christians can see that even the discipline of God is the best way to go. And therefore, there is a sense of joy in that. We, the people of God, can rejoice in our suffering. It goes back to 2 Corinthians 4.17, the eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. And Paul expands on that. Paul says in that passage, he says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We have the hope of the glory of God. We live with that hope in the midst of pain and suffering. We rejoice in our suffering, even if it's the suffering of the disciplining hand of God. Here's what Calvin says on that verse I just quoted, 2 Corinthians 4.18. He says, Mark what it is that will make all the miseries of this world easy to be endured if we carry forward our thoughts to the eternity of the heavenly kingdom. For a moment is long if we look around us on this side and that, but when we have once raised our minds heavenward, a thousand years begin to appear to us to be like a moment. Momentary light affliction. Now before I go to my second point, I want to give you three practical ways to experience the culmination of your suffering as joyful opportunities. And I want to help you think through why it is that Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. He doesn't qualify that at all. He says we rejoice in our sufferings. And I'm telling you this morning that you can rejoice in your suffering. Here's three practical reasons why. Number one, trust that you are living rightly if you are suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who live godly will suffer persecution. All those who desire to live godly will be persecuted, Paul says. Rejoice because it is a mark or a sign of godliness. Let me just be honest with you. If nobody has a problem with you, then God surely has a problem with you. Indeed, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Are you suffering this morning from slander and persecution, from false accusations, from misrepresentations? Trust that you are living rightly. That is a sign of God's blessing upon you. You can have joy in the midst of that. So trust that you are living rightly if you're suffering and therefore have joy. Number two, trust that God is doing right. 
Not only that you're living right, but trust that God is doing right. Peter spoke a lot about suffering, and Peter made one of my favorite statements in all of Scripture. He says in 1 Peter 4, verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So while you're living good, while you're living rightly, Peter says, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Not only trust that you're living right, but trust that God is doing right. Rejoice because it is a reminder that God is sovereign over the details of your life and everything will be okay. There's a sense in which you can have joy, even in the midst of your suffering, when you recognize you have a faithful creator who is watching after all things. So trust, trust that you are living right when you're suffering, trust that you are that God is doing right when you are suffering. And number three, trust that God will make all things right in the end when you are suffering. Skip with me to uh, Romans chapter 8 in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy or worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And what is that glory? Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been growing, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Trust that you are living rightly when you're suffering because all those who live godly will suffer persecution. Trust that, you're, that God is doing rightly and trust your soul to a faithful creator and trust that God will make all things right. In the end, he'll make all things right. When you have that sort of heavenward focus, as Calvin calls it, you will be able to have joy in the midst of immense suffering. That though this world be dark and cold, with eyes of faith I will be bold. For famine, fears, and tears beside, joy I find because on heaven's highway I ride. Where is your focus this morning? If it's on your pain, if it's on your trauma, if it's on your victimhood, instead of on this loving God who sometimes has a heavy hand that presses you down, but is doing it for your good, then you'll never have joy. Your focus must be on this sovereign, loving, compassionate God. That's why Paul makes no qualifications in verse 3. He simply says, notice your text again, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. That's the culmination factor, that the culmination of all of your sufferings and all of your trials and all of your anguish and all of your anxiety, even in this present time, can be a cause for rejoicing. But there's another factor that allows you to have joy in your suffering for God, not only the culmination factor, but number two, the maturation factor. The maturation factor, notice the rest of verse three, Paul says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Paul's on a roll here. Verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame. So Paul says there is a maturation factor, or we could say a process. The maturation process for the Christian, with God at the helm, we can entrust ourselves to a faithful creator who does all things right, has a logical sequence that leads to Christian joy. And Paul is going behind the scenes to show us how God is working behind the curtain of your life. Here is the sequence, and you got to get it in your mind, you got to get it in your heart. Number one, the sequence of this maturation process or sanctification process is that suffering produces endurance. Notice verse 3. 
knowing that suffering produces endurance. Now, I like what MacArthur says. He says these verses are a synopsis of Christian maturity and sanctification. And how does it begin? It begins with recognizing that suffering produces endurance. Now, what is suffering? I defined it for you, philipsis. It's pressures, the pressures of life. Knowing, Paul says, that suffering, life's pressures, produces endurance. Let me give you a verse. The Christian is destined for affliction. I can read your future. 1 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. Let no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Destined for what? Destined for afflictions. And what does Paul say in Romans 5.3? We know. We know. What do we know? That suffering produces endurance. Sproul says that tribulation or suffering puts muscles on our souls. And that's what Paul's saying here. Suffering produces endurance. It, it is producing in you the ability to withstand storms the more you go through. Listen, the church is not, it's not just a hospital full of sick people. It is, it is like a, um, a battlefield of wounded soldiers and veterans. We've not given up the fight. We're just getting bandaged up and fixed up to go fight the next fight. And Paul says, listen, you better have that fighting spirit because you've been destined for affliction. I mean, imagine that. What does your future look like? Here's what it looks like, more affliction. What does tomorrow look like for you? Let me tell you, more affliction. What does next Tuesday look like? Guess what? More affliction. I don't know what kind, and I'm scared to know what kind I'm going to face, but I know this, when the sun comes up, the affliction is coming with it. In fact... Paul says this, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Let him sanctify you completely because your spirit, your soul, your body, God is working on to make you blameless at his coming and therefore may the God of peace work in your hearts. That's the result of sanctification. Suffering or life's pressures is the only path to glory. That's really what Paul's saying. Go with me to uh, Romans 8 and verse 17. Paul says, if we are children, then we're also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I love that verse. You are a fellow heir with Christ. God the Father gave Jesus Christ the kingdom. And guess what? That kingdom is yours. Because you're a fellow heir of Christ. But there's a cost. Notice verse 17. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also what? Be glorified with him. Now the end goal of sanctification is our glorification. And what Paul is saying in verse 3 is that suffering lends a hand in this process of sanctification leading to our glorification. That's why he says knowing that suffering produces endurance. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, author, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about it with me for a moment. The Christian quality of endurance is not possible apart from suffering. I mean, isn't that right? If you had no suffering, then how could you develop the quality of endurance? There'd be nothing to endure through. So basically what Paul's saying here is no pain, no gain. And don't get the wrong idea. This isn't suck it up in the strength of your own flesh. This is bearing up under life's 
pressures because the power of Christ, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, rests on you. That's what Paul says. And naturally, we want to get out from under pressure, right? Out from underneath the pressure of a test or the pressure of a deadline or the pressure of financial stress or the pressure of responsibilities. But God enables you and allows you and ordains for you to suffer so that you can develop endurance. And going back to that metaphor of philipsis or suffering or the pressing weight of you being in an olive press, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5 and notice amazingly what Peter says here because this is rather shocking. Suffering is not an indication that God is angry with you. It's an indication that God is in love with you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under what? The mighty hand of God. This is the suffering, the pressing down of God's people. Why? So that at the proper time He may what? Exalt you. So what do you do? Verse 7, Casting all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. When you feel His heavy hand pressing down on you, even if it's His hand of discipline, much less the persecution and suffering that others cause in your life. That affliction, that philipsis, that suffering is a reminder, Peter says, that God cares for you. And not that He's angry with you, but that He cares for you. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And one of the ways he does that is by whispering in your ear that God no longer loves you and He no longer cares for you. And how many Christians, if I had a book where I wrote down every name of every Christian I've ever known and ministered to who walked away from the Lord and became apostate because they thought that the suffering they were going through was an indication that there was no God or if there was a God, he was an angry God and they deserved better. If I had a book, it'd be that thick of people who make that statement, which is a sign that that person never was truly saved because God would have kept them if they were truly saved. What Paul is saying here is absolutely amazing. We can have joy, verse 3, because we know that suffering produces endurance. But there's more to this maturation process. Not only does suffering produce endurance, but Paul goes on to say, verse 4, and endurance produces character. This is what we're after, right? The word character is dakame. It literally means proven character. But all character is proven if you think about it. In other words, if you say that you live one way, but in actual fact you live another way, then that means you don't have character. All character is proven or tested or it's not real character. And that word character, dakame, it was used in the process of testing metals like gold and silver to prove their purity. They were put under the fire. So there are two images, I believe, being used here with philipsis and suffering and now dakame with character. It's the image of being pressed as if you're in an olive press or pressed by the feet of God in a threshing floor. And now the imagery of being put to the flame, that God tests his precious metals to purify them, to develop character. So is your character pure? Well, the only way to know is if you're tested. I mean, anyone can look shiny and glitzy, but it's when we're put through the fires of affliction that our character or lack thereof is Revealed. Have you ever seen someone under a high-pressure situation? When everything is going well, they're calm, cool, and collect. The moment something happens, be it in the workplace or whatever, they lose it. They have no character. 
What Paul is saying here is that for the Christian, you can have joy in the midst of your suffering because this endurance is ultimately producing character. You're like a veteran soldier who can take what's coming because you've received so much before. That the intense heat of trials ordained by God's providential flame cleanses true Christians from impurities. And the result of this is joy because the heavenly blacksmith is creating within you a character that will last and glorify himself. In fact, uh, we were going to turn to it eventually, turn to uh, James chapter 1. A great cross-reference, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Again, James has the same idea as Paul. It's not if, but when you meet trials of various kinds or sufferings. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? steadfastness or endurance and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing it's a process and then notice verse 12 blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him you see even in the worst of times like the heat of this moment's trials can end up being the best of times ultimately and eternally so the crucible of life results in us receiving the crown of life, no pain, no gain. But that's not all. Not only does suffering produce endurance, and endurance produce character, but notice the end of verse 4, Paul says, and character produces hope. Character produces hope. Now hope here is that the path of suffering is the path that leads to the glory of being conformed to the image of Christ. That's the hope that Paul has in mind. That all that God is doing and working on you, he's not going to give up. He's not going to abandon the project. He's not going to give up. He's going to do what he has to do to make you pure, to make you more like Christ in this life, because in the next life, you're going to look just like him. So in this life, he has to do certain things with his heavy hand to make you like Christ. That reality ought to cause joy in your heart. That God the Father wants to make us look like his beloved son, which is the way we want to look. We want to look more like Christ. You know, there are several Old Testament passages of scripture that speak about God putting his hand upon his people in a way that it's like he's putting them through a fire and testing them. It's the same imagery that is used here in Romans chapter five. I'll I'll just read to you one example. I know you're familiar with this verse. Zechariah 13, and I will put this third of this people into the fire and refine them as one refined silver. Test them as gold is tested. They'll call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Isn't Christianity the most interesting religion? Isn't the Christian experience the most bizarre that in the midst of God and his flaming providential hand upon us, that we can say, God, I know that you're my God. God, my joy is wrapped up in you because I see you working in my heart and in my life, leading me to that place where I will ultimately be conformed to the very image of Christ. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone, John says, 
Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This is just fundamentally true about my life and your life. That the more that you see God purifying your life, the more that you trust that God is purifying you, the more sanctified you will be. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself. Do you have the hope that all that God is doing in your life is purifying you, removing the dross, making you more like Christ, making you more humble, making you more compassionate, making you more loving, making you more bold. I hope that today you are a more mature Christian than you were last year at this time. I hope that today you are a more mature Christian than you were last week, two years ago, five years ago. There is a maturation process And when you submit to it and when you recognize it, what you see is the hand of God so heavily involved in every detail of your life that even in the midst of pain and sorrow and tears, you can still rejoice. Now, I can't explain that to you because it's something you have to experience. And that is why we come now to the third factor. How can you have joy and suffering for God? Number one, you need to understand the culmination factor, where all of this is leading. The maturation factor, the process. Now the confirmation factor. Notice in verse 5. Paul says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We know that even in the worst of times, we can have joy because God's love is confirmed to us in the midst of our present lives. It's confirmed to us in two ways. Subjectively, in our hearts, and objectively, at the cross. Now hang with me on this. Anyone that knows me knows that I'm about the most unemotional person in existence. I don't like to talk about mystical, warm and fuzzy feelings. And that's not what I'm going to talk about this morning. But I want to press home to you the reality that if you are a true Christian, you will subjectively sense and feel the love of God. And if you don't, that is evidence that you're not a true Christian. Notice, God confirms His love subjectively in our hearts. Verse 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, this is not speaking about the believer's love for God. This is speaking about God's love for the believer. And I can prove it to you if you go with me to Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from what? The love of Christ. Paul says, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, nakedness, danger? No. And all these things were more than conquerors. So the focus of Romans 8 is not our love for God. Let's just be clear. We don't have enough love for God. And we wouldn't have any love for God were it not for His sovereignty. So get it out of your mind. Verse 5 has nothing to do about your love for God. This is God's love for you. And notice he says, the justified believer, for him, hope does not put us to shame. We have a hope that will not put us to shame. Now, there's several types of hopes. There's dissipative hope. That is hope that dissipates. I can give you an example of this. You remember when that slave girl was following the apostle Paul around in Acts chapter 16. Finally, 
he had enough of it, and he turned around. She was demon-possessed, spirit of divination, cast the demons out. And the owners of that girl, when they saw, as the text says, Acts 16, 19, that their hope of gain was gone, they headed out for Paul and Silas. When their hope of gain was gone, when they realized this girl wasn't worth anything anymore, they weren't going to get any value from her and any money, their hope dissipated, it was gone before their eyes. That's an illustration of the type of hope that people have in this world. It's just not real. It dissipates. Ephesians 2.12, having no hope without God in the world. So there's dissipative hope. There's also deceptive hope. There's people who really believe they have hope till the day they die. But Proverbs 11.17 says, when the wicked dies, his hope will perish with him. So you can have dissipative hope. It dissipates on to the next thing trying to find hope in something else. You can have hope against hope, deceptive hope. But what Paul says here is that the Christian has declarative hope. This is a hope, verse 5, that does not put us to shame. Let me give you a verse, Psalm 22, 5. To you, God, they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. God's people will not be put to shame. How do we know that? How do we know that our hope will not be disappointed? How do you know this morning that what you're participating in in this worship service is not a sham? How do you know you wouldn't be better spending your time doing something else? How do you know? How do you know your hope when you come to the end of your life will not be disappointed? Verse 5, what does it say? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice it doesn't say God's love was sprinkled. God's love was poured. This is like a cloud burst. And as I said, please understand me this morning, this is really not something I can exposit. Justice and understanding what verse 5 means does not come by me explaining it. It comes by you experiencing it. And you will not experience it if you don't have the Holy Spirit. And if you're not saved, you don't have the Holy Spirit. So what I'm saying, you're just going to look at me like I've got three eyes. I might as well just stop explaining it now because it can't be explained. It's something that is experienced. In fact, this act of God pouring his love into us through the Holy Spirit that ministers to us a love that we feel, a love that we sense, a love that we know, a love that causes us to rejoice, it's all grace. It's gracious. Notice it's given to us. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Given to us, that's in the aorist tense, which means it's a past event. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's given to us. That means it's gracious. You can't ask God for more of the Holy Spirit or try to be a good boy and a good girl and get more of it. It's a gift. It's given to you. Number one. Number two, it's not only gracious, it's instantaneous. It's like justification. Justification is a declarative act where God declares us righteous based on our faith. And the Holy Spirit is instantaneously given to us. That phrase, given to us, as I said, is in the aorist tense, which means it's a past act. So I don't care what the charismatics say. Verse 5 has nothing to do about a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Nothing. And I read so many pages this week, I'm not even going to bore you with the explanations people give. And I'll even go on the record to say Martin Lloyd-Jones is wrong on this verse. You might like him. I might like him. We may respect him. He's wrong on it. This is the Holy Spirit given to believers instantaneously. It is gracious, it is instantaneous, but it's also continuous. Notice it says has been poured. 
into our hearts. That is actually um, ekeo, it's in the perfect tense, which describes a, an action in the past which has been completed but has continuing results. So it's, it's not like uh, God pours a little here and then puts the bottle upright and then 15 years later in your Christian life pours more and woo, you got this experience and maybe another five years pours out. You know, this is God continually pouring. To his true believers, he continually pours his love into their hearts, ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. It is gracious, it is instantaneous, it is continuous. It's also ambitious. Notice, he doesn't seek to give it just to a select few. Notice, given to who? Given to us. Paul's speaking to all the Christians in Rome. He's speaking to all Christians today. You don't have more of the Holy Spirit than I have. And I can't have any of the Holy Spirit taken away, and I can't take away some of your Holy Spirit to give me more Holy Spirit. This is given to all believers. It's also conscious. We're aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the love of God, even in the midst of our suffering. That's Paul's point. Back to Romans 8 again. I really want to get there quick. We're just so far away from it. Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit, what? That we are children of God. Right there. That verse applies in Romans 5. Your spirit has the Holy Spirit of God telling it that you're a child of God. You're consciously aware that you belong to God in the midst of your suffering. Now, we may experience this love of the Holy Spirit in different degrees and waves, but you don't get extra of it. None is taken away. It's gracious. It's a gift. It's instantaneous. It comes... It's upon reception or salvation. It's continuous. It's ongoing. It's ambitious. It's to all Christians. It's conscious. We're all aware of it. We're comforted by it. The Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. One of the surest signs of a true believer is calmness in the midst of pain and joy in the midst of suffering. I can't explain it. I've experienced it. Some of you have experienced it. But one of the greatest signs of a non-believer is that they don't have that inner joy. They're looking for something outside of that. And it doesn't matter how many counseling sessions you have and how often you talk about the blessing of the gospel till you're blue in the face. If someone's not born again, if, they're not, if they've not been regenerated, if they're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, been sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, then they won't have that inner peace and that inner joy. Here's what MacArthur says, and I quote, Because acknowledging God's promises with the mind does not necessarily bring personal confidence to the heart, God makes provision for the emotional encouragement as well as the mental enlightenment of his children. And that's what Paul is doing here in verse 5. He's spoken about all this glorious doctrine, and now he just comes to the heart of it, and he speaks very subjectively about what you and I experience in our hearts because of the gospel. So God confirms his love subjectively in our hearts but let's not get ahead of ourselves what is this subjective experience rooted in the objective truth of the gospel so while God confirms his love subjectively in your heart don't forget that it's objectively confirmed at the cross notice verse 6 Paul gets right back to it for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly we'll stop right there when we were weak that is when we were unable to come to God when we were unwilling to come to God because we were ungodly Without hope, what does verse 6 say? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, we tend to view love from a carnal angle. We love what is lovable and what is lovely. 
And my marriage is an example of that. Corey is very easy to love. She is the most caring person I know. She is the most loyal person I know. And sometimes I don't like it, but she's the most honest person that I know. And she doesn't even have to say anything. It's just a look. And I know exactly what she thinks. That's an easy person to love. Listen, folks, we are not easy to love. We are unlovable, ungodly enemies of God. And what Paul is saying here in verse 6 is that God's love is unlike any love in this world. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shows, he demonstrates, he proves his love where? At Calvary. That objective reality, that historical reality, that is what our hope is rooted in. The subjective love of God in the heart comes because of that. We were rebels, we were enemies. So objectively, in human history, God confirmed his love by sending Christ to die as a substitute in our place, and subjectively, in our hearts, he continually confirms it, and Paul's whole point is that's why you can have joy in suffering for God. You can suffer in the midst of persecution. You're not going to have peace in this world. Jesus says you're going to have tribulation in this world, but you can have peace in your hearts. My peace I leave with you, John 14, 27. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, philipsis, suffering, you will enter the kingdom of God. So it's what we know, as Paul says here, it's what we know to be true. It's what we acknowledge objectively about the gospel. It's what we've experienced by the Holy Spirit, what is inexplicable. We can't explain. I can't teach someone how to feel the love of God. You either have the love of God in you or you don't. But we can tell others about this objective reality of the gospel, and that's what we do. And then we leave the work up to the Holy Spirit. Our Father is not looking to pound us in our trials, in our sufferings. He's looking to promote His love. He's looking to press us down so that we look up. We humble ourselves under His mighty hand that we may be exalted in due time. I've told this story before, and I'll close with this. When I was in middle school, I, well, I guess the best way to say it is that I had a, a problem remaining academically eligible to uh, participate in sports. And honestly, I'm not that smart. So it wasn't a behavioral issue. But I remember my dad sitting with me and he would study with me for hours. And um, I had a social studies quiz. I think it was a geography quiz. I don't remember. And uh, we studied for a couple hours the night before, and he said, now, son, you've, you, have a, you have a C minus in this class, and I've spoken to your teacher, and if, if, you don't get, if you don't get at least a C minus, this is the last quiz, you could, you could fail the class. You could fail the class. So I was stressed out and went to school, took the quiz, and I knew I had bombed it. I mean, I knew I had bombed it. In fact, uh, the teacher did one of these. So I had to walk before the class. The problem was, Dad had said, if you fail this quiz, you fail this class, then I'm going to suspend you from your basketball game, which he has the authority to do because he was my dad, not because he was my coach. And uh, I had practiced that night, and I remember being so, my stomach was so tied up in knots because I had failed the test, the quiz, because I had really disappointed my dad. That's what I was concerned about more than anything, and I couldn't make any shots. I, it was terrible practice, and so we got in the car to go home, and I, 
I was upset, but I was trying to hide it. I didn't want him to find out that I had failed the quiz. And he said, son, what was wrong with you tonight? And I said, well, you know, I said, I, I failed the quiz that we studied for. And um, I've been so worked up because I didn't want to disappoint you. I didn't want to fail you. And he said, son, I understand that. You will never disappoint me because you're always my son. We'll get the next test. I've never forgotten that because that is a father who is telling his son, there's nothing you can do to cause me to stop loving you. You can fail. You can fail miserably, but I'll never stop loving you. And it's also a testament to the son's view of the father that as children of God, we avoid sin. We repent because we don't want to disappoint our father. We don't want to go through a trial and waste it because we say, I don't deserve this. How could God do this? We want to go through a trial and be preserved because we understand that God is at work behind the scenes in our hearts. This is tremendous because I think if Christians can grasp that they not only have joy in the best of times, but also the worst of times, if you can grasp that, you'll be fine. You'll be faithful. We've been blessed with so many blessings, peace with God, access before God, hope of the glory of God, joy and suffering for God. And Paul still has two blessings he's going to enumerate. We'll look at those next time. All of this flows from this glorious doctrine of justification. I hope God's word is ministered to your heart this morning. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.